Today I'm talking with Chris Desmond. Chris is a physiotherapist based in Wellington, New Zealand. He hosts The Art of Healthcare, a podcast and community dedicated to exploring the human side of healthcare and assisting professionals to implement human skills into their day-to-day practice. Chris believes that to deliver really great healthcare, we need both clinical and human skills. Unfortunately, these human skills aren't taught particularly well or valued highly by the professions. We talk about why it's time that changed. Chris, it's great to have you with us. I'm excited about this conversation. Maybe before we jump in, tell people a little bit about you uh, professionally and and personally. Thanks for inviting me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Professionally, uh, my background is a physiotherapist or physical therapist, depending on where you're listening. I've been a physio for the last 15 years. Uh, I started off my career working in the public health system here in New Zealand uh, in, a, in a range of roles through from kind of pediatrics through to end of life care um, and just about everything in between. The last 10 years I've been working in private practice here in New Zealand, uh, dealing with mostly musculoskeletal clients um, and probably slanted towards those with more persistent pain and more persistent conditions. Um, that's kind of the, the path that my career took me on. And I really enjoy working with, with that population. Um, I've also done some work in the vocational rehab space, uh, helping people transition back to work post-injury. Um, I've got a post-grad qualification in that and um, have been leading a clinical team for six years or so as well um, and naively decided to, that a master's in management would be great as well. Um, so I tucked that one under my belt too, which probably made me a better clinician because it allowed me to see the, the shades of grey a little bit more easily. Um, personally, I'm a dad of two young boys, one's, one's three and one's uh, 14 months, um, and a crazy dog as well. And excitingly enough, over the last four months, I have actually had the opportunity to be a full-time dad. Uh, my wife, uh, my wife's a doctor, and she's gone back to work full time. And um, I've I, I jumped at the opportunity to to stay home with with the boys and, and hang out and, and do a bit of dad time. Um, and aside from that, I like to keep physically active, go to the gym, go running, um, and have been working on a little bit of a side project to my stay at home dad life called The Art of Healthcare. Uh, and it is a, a podcast and a community and it, it really explores the human side of healthcare and how we can better help the, the person rather than the patient or the, or the person before the pathology. Right. What drew you towards exploring this world of, you know, quote unquote, humane healthcare? Like what, what was the draw? I mean, I assume that it, as, as is the case with most exploratory journeys it usually starts with some kind of pain like something just to feel is kind of out of sorts definitely and actually i was interviewing someone on my podcast the other day and she said we all got into healthcare for the human side we all got into healthcare predominantly because we wanted to help people i'm sure there's a couple of people out there who 
didn't. I've got a friend who's a radiologist who doesn't like patients and doesn't like nurses. So radiology was a great career <laughs> for him. X-rays. Uh, yeah, loves <laughs> X-rays, yeah. loves doing scans. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but for for me, I guess over time, I got a little bit frustrated with kind of applying a clin- a purely clinical model to patients and them having different outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd apply the, the best clinical research um, and some of the clinical research in physiotherapy and fairness is a little bit gray about what is what is better than something else. But I apply what I thought was the best clinical research to someone they'd do really, really well and they'd get better. And then I'd apply it to someone else in a very, very similar situation with a very similar pathology and they wouldn't go so well. And that happened often enough for me to start to ask, actually, what's going on here? Like, why, why are some people getting better with this and, and others aren't? And I also had the opportunity to thankfully pass some of those people over to some of my colleagues for another opinion or for some different advice. And I'd watch them go from kind of stagnating with me to really starting to improve with, with someone else. And I talked to the, uh, the clinician afterwards and I said, what, what did you do? Do you have some magic clinical trick that you did? Was that a mobilization or did you, there's a, there's a foot mobilization called the black snake whip, which sounds amazing. I've, I've never done it. Um, did, you, did you do something like that? And I said, no, I did exactly what you did. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay. Which kind of led me to, to question, okay, what else is, is going on here? And um, I think, thankfully, the research is starting to show it's the, it's the relationship that we have between the, the clinician and the, and the person or the, the healthcare provider and the person plays a, a large role in helping people improve. But also if that clinician can start to understand the context that the person lives in as well and help to personalize any healthcare program that you're that you're working on together to that specific context rather than giving someone cookie cutter clinical advice and as i've progressed thankfully i've been i've been on the other side of the equation often enough, enough as well where, where people have passed patients over to all pe- uh, clients patients whatever you'd like to call them over to me and just the change in relationship or change in dynamic has helped those those people move forward and I guess as well, I'm probably a little bit biased. I'm always, I'm a people person. I host a podcast. I love having conversations. I always got better marks at physio school for communication as opposed to the clinical side of things as well. So it, it, it kind of speaks to my biases as well. What do you think happens in that relationship that's so transformational for people? I mean, beyond the, the clinical intervention, um, and I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying, the quality and the interaction. What are the features of that interaction that make it so change-making for, for people? It's a really, that's a really interesting question. And I think there's, there's probably a lot of things that play a part with that. And I mean, if you, if you look at the, the studies around kind of person-centered care, there's the, the eight or nine sort of hot things that you you should be doing. But when I when I finished up working as a as a physiotherapist four months ago, I asked some of my long term clients, uh, thinking about uh, transitioning their care to another another practitioner, 
saying, okay, what did, what did you actually like about the way that we work together? How did, cause that's going to inform who I, who I pass you over to like the strengths of my, of my colleagues. Right. And by and large, the commerce, the thing that came back the most was you understand me as a person. So I think there's, I think there's an element of taking the time to really listen to the person and, and start to understand not just their, their problem or their pathology, but understand the context of their life and, and who they are. And I guess kind of, if you want to use an all encompassing term, empathy uh, is really important in, in that space. Uh, but also I think another one is, is making people feel safe as well. And I think safety comes in, safety comes in many forms. I think safety is probably some reassurance that hopefully things are all going to be okay, that you are, you have the ability to get better here. Uh, safety also, I think, um, comes into the form of psychological safety for people as well within our, within our setting. Um, I mean, when people have an interaction with a healthcare provider, there's an inherent power dynamic, uh, power imbalance there. Um, often they come to, they come to see us. They haven't been to, well, they haven't interacted much with a healthcare provider as well. Um, and kind of we're viewed as the expert. So there's a, a power imbalance there, um, which is, is also more challenging with indigenous populations as well. Um, and a westernized model of, of healthcare. So trying to trying to reduce that that power imbalance and make make people feel safe and feel non-judged as well, mm. um, because I think and I've definitely been guilty of it as well as there there often is kind of judgment that we hold as healthcare providers with a whole lot of expert knowledge of people and the health decisions that they make um, and. While we may not say anything overtly, sometimes we'll say a stupid throwaway comment um, that makes people feel unsafe. But if we're if we're trying to if we're judging people internally, that's going to come across to them as well. And um, I think trying to cultivate a concept um, of I think it was Michael Gervais, uh, who's a, a performance psychologist who hosts the Finding Mastery podcast. I heard him say it one day, and it's the most eloquent way that I've heard it positioned is unconditional positive regard for the person, which I don't think can be, can be beaten. Um, so I think those, those are probably the big ones, the empathy, the unconditional positive regard for a person. And also when things don't go to plan, trying to understand like what, what do we need to shift? Do we just keep hammering away at this clinical model? Or is there something, is there something in the peripheries that needs to move before we can, can make progress? Yeah, I agree with that. And also made, you know, certainly I think in the, in the principles of safety and empathy, uh, trust. I think also when you're dealing with chronic pain and the more I've talked to people who work in the chronic pain space, and also understanding chronic pain personally and seeing it in my family, there's chronic pain is a very contracting experience psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. 
people often show up, quote unquote, crippled by the chronic pain. And, and that crippling is kind of like a contracting. And you can see how trust and empathy and relatability and staying extremely open to that person would be essential to help address that psycho-spiritual condition of feeling probably very contracted and limited by that experience. So it makes perfect sense to me that from a, particularly from a chronic pain lens, where we're not kind of just, you know, putting a Band-Aid on a small boo-boo and it's going to fix itself because it's acute and, you know, has that more repairable, immediately repairable quality to it, where that would be truly, truly transformational for people. Definitely. I think that you, you make a really good point there as well, is that, that, that trust is, is so vital because as part of my role, at, at some point, I'm going to ask you to do something hard I'm going to ask you to do something that is that is challenging, that's probably a little bit out of your comfort zone, and I need to have built the trust and make a really good clinical decision at what is the right level to ask you to do that. But if there's no trust there, someone's just going to walk away, and they're not going to they're not going to engage, and you lose your chance to you lose your chance to help that person, but you also make it really really hard for the next people down the line to help that person as well, because I've had a poor interaction with you. Right. Yeah, it breeds a kind of mistrust. Uh, And surprisingly, there's a lot of mistrust within the healthcare system. I know particularly when when you look at, you know, people of color or you often have a lot of, uh, a lot of discussion or a narrative that that speaks to this level of mistrust, uh, discomfort. And I think it you're right that it does come back to this very deep human interaction, this ability to show up for someone fully. So let's imagine that there's a kind of human-facing healthcare practice where we fully show up for people. And then there's a kind of healthcare practice that's very rote and mechanical and highly instrumental. What's the resistance, you think, within current healthcare systems? I know that you know, your healthcare system is different than the one in Canada, the one in the U.S., but I think this is a pretty pervasive uh, global problem. What do you think is the resistance that exists between this very Newtonian cause-effect instrumentalist model where we have a clinical practice, it's evidence-based, this is what we apply, this is what is known, uh, versus this more nuanced, let's call it quantum approach to exploratory um, layered approach to being in a relationship with the client. What are the big resistors between those two models? Good question. I think at the at the highest level, there's there's resistors probably in three different fields. There's societal resistors, so what people expect when they come to a healthcare provider, because healthcare providers over time have been great at marketing this cause and effect. Um, I think New Zealand is one of the, is the only other country other than the US where you can actually advertise medication on television. Mm. Um, So you get these advertisements going right to the source of pain. It'll, it'll treat that area there. So I think there's, there's societal changes that probably need to need to happen. Um, these large systemic changes that I think uh, get in the way as well, especially around funding models. Um, and there's, I, I don't think 
all of the different healthcare systems have different challenges in this area, and I don't think there's anyone that is that is perfect. Um, there's, there's probably good things about some of them, um, but the funding model is makes it challenging or potentially challenging to deliver that that really humanistic layered approach. So what um, you're saying and I is think, like what people are being paid for in the sense of like, I'm yeah. being paid for a procedure, so to speak. No, yeah. no, no one's paying me for the the human connection side of this experience. Is that? that is, yeah, that, that's true. Um, I think there are there are some there are some funding models that are starting to get a little bit more outcome based, um, which would allow some more scope for that that more humanistic experience, um, which is is a positive, and it'll be interesting to see how they play out over the over the next sort of five to ten years. Um, I think systemically as well is that we're trained as through our, our universities and through our prof ongoing professional development, we're trained to think about things predominantly still from a biomedical approach. Um, there's, there's talk, there's research about um, biopsychosocial or inactive models of health or different, different ways of doing things. Um, but it's still, even though the biopsychosocial model came out in the 70s, it's still reasonably fresh and people people talk about it, but they don't they don't really start to apply it. Um, and I think that a lot of the, the culture of um, of hospitals, of of the way that healthcare is delivered as well, is still focused on that, on that cause and effect model. And when you're when you're in a culture where everyone's talking like that, and trying to apply that model, it's, it's hard to think differently as well. And it's hard to think differently as, as clinicians. Um, yeah, there's a lot of group think in healthcare, a lot of socialized thinking in healthcare. I wonder what contributes to that, to the source of that group think. Like, why is this particular sector very dominated by a certain kind of group thinking? That's a really, it's a really interesting question. And again, I think it's massively multifactorial. One of the things I think is fear. Mm. I think we're really scared of getting things wrong and we're really scared of, of making mistakes. And um, here in New Zealand, thankfully, there's, there's no litigation if we do make a, a, a healthcare mistake. Um, I mean, you, you might be brought up in front of the Health and Disability Commissioner and have sanctions imposed from you there, but you're not going to be, you're not going to be sued. Mm. Um, but there is... There's a, a lot of fear, I think, of, of doing things wrong. Um, and that keeps us, that keeps us contracted right. as well and doesn't let, allow us to explore that more humanistic side because we don't feel that we have the skill set or we think that it's beyond our scope of practice. It's not procedure. No, yeah. no. Compassion um, is not in the procedure manual. <clears throat> Yeah. Insert compassion I, here. Yeah, I can't talk to this person about feelings. Right. I've never been trained in talking about feelings. Right. What if I do if they cry? Yeah. Well, well, I think that there's there is that side of the conversation, which is we we don't really formally train healthcare professionals in the world of human intelligences. No. Um, we don't train them in. Uh, learning the skills of the human skills of empathy and compassion um 
and deep listening, um, which is it, it's it's borderline shocking uh, to be honest mm. with you because there's your practice is human practice. I mean, call it whatever you want. Uh, it, it is the practice of being in a relationship with a human being who's in, in a suffering experience. And there is no more greater occasion than to show up compassionately, empathetically, and fully for someone who's in that. That is the gift of being um, in a relationship with someone who is suffering. Uh, it's, it's, it's a bit dumbfounding to imagine that this is not core to how we um, educate healthcare professionals. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you you just listed off three of the nine core components of person-centered care, which, again, are all humanistic components as well. Um, and we know that if we're delivering person-centered care, people get better outcomes. Mm. But we don't, we don't train our healthcare providers in doing that. Um, but... Again, hopefully that's starting to starting to change as well. And, and kind of conversations like like this one, there are other people who are training communication skills. I recently had a conversation with uh, with Claire Killingback, who is the head of physiotherapy at Hull University, and they're just starting a new physiotherapy program and trying to weave this through their their physiotherapy program alongside the biology and pathology and anatomy, right. but to bring this into new and create new physiotherapists for the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that this, I, and I think it's the, you know, some of the principles that you see in, in the world of wellness um, and our expanded view of what it means to feel, be, live well are seeping into the healthcare space. You know, I think we're we're developing a much more expanded view. It, it's slow. The uptake, the uptake sometimes feels very slow. I, I cannot think of too many interactions I've had with healthcare professionals that I would describe as deeply human, which is sad making, uh, to be honest with you. Um, and I don't think it's because they're not human. I think it's because they're stuck in a specific paradigm of how they practice and what they're to your point, what their expertise is, um, how they're supposed to function. I agree with you that I think litigation is a factor. I think it's particularly a factor in the U.S. where there is a culture of litigation. I've spoken to enough physicians there who live in a state of fear that, you know, step, you know, draw one line, just just draw a little bit outside the lines and someone, you know, is going to take you to court. I was talking to a physician. He said, I don't know any physician that has not been taken to court um wow yeah so living under that living with that fear so now you're stuck in a fear system clients show up feeling fearful and apprehensive uh physicians are practicing fearfully and apprehensively so of course there's not a lot of room for human contact in that dynamic when it's mostly dominated by a sense of fear anxiety um you're probably going to go very much by the book and I think also like with that, we get really wrapped up in our professional identity as well as oh, I'm, a, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, I'm a physi physical therapist, I'm an occupational therapist. And, and we almost become that clinician first. And you said you're still human. But I think sometimes we forget that we're a person as well. We don't bring our personality to that interaction. Um, we don't talk about our we don't talk about our kids we don't talk about stuff that we've got going on outside or we don't 
um, talk to someone about what they've got going on in their life and relate it back to, to something that we've done or we've experienced as well. And I think that if we don't do that, that, that impacts our ability to build trust with people and our, impacts our ability to, to empathize with people as well. Yeah, so we, we do we do forget, and, and whether that's just from uh, kind of our professional identity, or whether that is from the business models that we're operating within, is the the, the KPIs that we need to hit, um, and we're so focused on that stuff that we forget that we're a person first mm-hmm. instead of a clinician. Yeah, I think that is that's coming that's coming to a head right now. COVID made that experience, I think, very vivid for healthcare professionals. A lot of people are talking about COVID and the Great Resignation as an experience of overwhelm. I think the amount of work is one feature of the overwhelm, but I think the bigger overwhelm is the moral overwhelm. The moral overwhelm to have been kind of seduced by the idea that you're in a fixing profession, your your purpose is to fix people, the pandemic made it very difficult to do that. And I think that created a cascading experience of moral and spiritual overwhelm to have to deal with the reality that there's a lot of people here I cannot fix, or I'm going to have to make decisions about, you know, who lives, who dies. This is why I think it's really important that we start advocating again for getting back to the craft of health care that this is a craft about caring. It's not a craft about fixing and solving. Those are outcomes. It's a craft about caring. And when you're genuinely invested in an experience of caring, you can only go so wrong. I think what people are really, really yearning for is to feel supported and cared for. It's the same with being a parent. I mean, and you, and you know this experience much better than I do, but when you show up fully for your kids in a caring way, you're still going to make errors. But when you do it in a caring context, um, something different happens in that experience. The self-compassion you extend yourself, the grace that you bring to your child and acknowledging that something didn't go quite right, those are all opening experiences. Those are healing experiences. And it's funny, when I talk to people who have been impacted by a health issue and I ask them to reflect on their healthcare experience, they never, ever talk to me about procedures, ever. Don't tell me about, wow, that scan was terrific and that day I got injected was the best thing ever. And they talk about the lessons learned. They talked about the human points of connection. They talked about things that they discovered about themselves. They talked about things that they committed to changing as a result of a difficult situation. They talk about these very human qualities. That is what's most resonant for them. That was That is what is most healing for them. I mean, I know that that's hard to peg down. I don't have a statistical table to capture all of that. Um, But there's a lot of evidence to support the idea that those human connections are what really heal people at the end of the day or how they feel healed in that experience. There's no big overarching statistic, but there are are a number of kind of smaller ones that point to this as well. Um, there's, There's studies out there that show that surgeons that communicate well with their patients, their patients report that their operation went better um, by a factor of 20 to one, mm. which is 
is ridiculous. It's probably significant, as we would say. Probably not just quality of the surgeon, but there there are things there are things like that um, out there that that show how these that indicate these these humanistic elements are are really so vital and. Um, I wouldn't be shocked yeah, also if that if we took an honest measure of healthcare professionals who felt a deep sense of fulfillment in their work, you would see these qualities imbued in their work. You would see them probably practicing with greater compassion, greater care, uh, more value alignment, um, greater curiosity. Uh, I would be shocked if we would see anything other than clear evidence for that. And I'm sure someone much more research-oriented than, than I has done the analysis on that. But it would seem quite an obvious conclusion that you could draw, that my satisfaction also relates to how anchored I feel in this moment and the quality of this practice that I'm showing up with. Mm, definitely. And if anyone out there is listening and is into that research or knows someone that is, I'd be really, really fascinated to read it. Yeah. 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 yeah well, that's, I think it's critical that we start looking at these dimensions because I really do think that this is part of the overwhelm epidemic. It's an epidemic of a loss of meaning. I can't. I don't have time with my patients or clients anymore. I don't, I don't have space to create that connection anymore. I'm not in a relationship with them anymore. Like this is what I hear from people in practice who are experiencing this level of dissatisfaction. All the things that are deeply satisfying are absent from their practice. Procedure is not satisfying. I mean, it's just not. Feeling like you're an Ikea manual and you're an Allen key in the life of someone, <laughs> I don't know, how satisfying is that? To your point, I think most healthcare professionals step into this pre profession with the intention of wanting to be in a caring profession. Some of them maybe have had gone through their own experiences of suffering or have deep aspirations to, to support healing, to support the betterment of others, and they find themselves in this, over years, in a rote task or overwhelmed by a system that's asking them to do things that they know morally are not always the right things to do. Um, and so inevitably they leave, which is not surprising because where there's dissatisfaction, people will eventually, you know, flip a switch. So I think it's critical even for the future of healthcare that we rejig and re-understand if we're going to create sustainability within this healthcare network, uh, and attract professionals into this profession who want to get back to the craft of care. Definitely, and I think I think you're right with all of those points. And um, I think it's uh, often it's that that value misalignment of your your internal human values um, stacking up against what you're what you're being asked to achieve. But I think also we, we have a we have a role to play as clinicians or healthcare providers as well, and we have a responsibility to uh, to try and stay true to our values. Because there are there are massive systemic challenges in in how we how we go about doing that, but I think we have agency as well with whatever role that we are in to bring those humanistic qualities to the fore, um, and whether that's you're uh, working as a as a family doctor and you have ten minute appointments with someone. Um, with a list of seven health problems, which is hugely challenging, right. but there are ways that you can you can bring your values, you can bring your humanistic 
um, your your humanistic skill set into even situations like that. Yeah. As well, um, it's hard. Yeah, I know it's hard. I mean, <laughs> the system is a matrix. It's a matrix. It's like, and it's always hard to unplug from a matrix. Uh, I get that. Um, and there's a lot of factors influencing what is holding this system together. Um, money is holding this system together. Um, you know, the the policies. Uh, you know, g- governments that fear change. Um, uh, appeasement policies hold this system together. Uh, there's a lot of things that are influencing the way. I mean, uh, it scares the hell out of me now that like bigger and bigger transactional businesses are getting into the healthcare space and and taking a dominant position in that space. Like, with respect, it concerns me that Amazon is getting into the healthcare space. Um, I don't know if I want Amazon being the, you know, writing the future, authoring the future of what healthcare looks like. They're great transactionally. They're good at moving around boxes. Healthcare is not about moving around boxes. And we don't need more transactional. uh, That's not what the healthcare system is desperately after to really make change. That should be concerning for us as well. What are the forces that are authoring the future of healthcare? Um, So all of those things are concerning. Uh, we should be concerned about them, um, and and we should be advocating, I think, collectively for stewarding a different kind of healthcare experience. What what do you think is like one thing that if you you think they can make the most remarkable difference, the simplest and most remarkable difference in healthcare that anyone listening to, whether they're experiencing a health problem or they're in the craft of healthcare that you think would just make the most remarkable change tomorrow and that really wouldn't be that hard to implement if you ask me this tomorrow my answer may be different but today i think as healthcare providers and i'm going to talk about it through the lens of a healthcare provider we're we're problem solvers we want to solve problems and i think thinking about it from the range of problems that people come to see us with. And I think there's three levels to that. Um, The first level is stuff that they don't know. So they want information, they want a a diagnosis and they want a prognosis. Um, And as healthcare providers, we're reasonably good at addressing that problem. The next level is problems that they're happy to, to talk about to us. Um, And these are my knees sore. I've, got a weird rash, um, I get a little bit breathless going up up the stairs. And these are these are functional problems um, that that are often symptom orientated. Uh, and again, we're we're reasonable at addressing those problems. But the third level of problems that people come to see us with are where we can uh, make the most difference and change change people's health trajectory. And these are the people, the problems that people aren't happy to talk to us about. They're their fears, they're their insecurities, um, and they mostly relate back to people's senses of identity or the roles that they play. Like for me, it's a, it's a, a father. So yeah, I've got this, I've got this sore knee. But 
that impacts on my ability to play with my children. And yeah, it'd be helpful for you to address my need, but it'd also be really helpful for you to help me to figure out, okay, how can I still interact with my children? How can I get, um, still have that sense of agency and, and fatherhood and give me some strategies to deal with that as well as helping me out with uh, with the diagnosis and with, with that functional stuff. And I think if we can start to think about, okay, what are, what are the important identities to this person? What are the important roles that they play? And how can we facilitate that person and empower them to step it back into those roles or keep going with those roles in some capacity while this other stuff is going on? And I think those those three sets of problems kind of respond to um, our three different layers of different types of care. So if we just address the problem of the stuff that people don't know, we're working biomedically. If we just address the stuff that people are happy to talk about, we're starting to work in a patient-centered care as well. Like we're, we're addressing stuff that's important to them, but as a patient, but if we're, if we're addressing those identity problems, those ones that people aren't so happy to talk about with us, that's when we start to work in that person-centered care way. Yeah. And it's hard to get to those problems. Hmm. But often a question that I ask people is, in my role dealing with kind of musculoskeletal problems, is I'll say to them, look, we know that pain is is challenging. We know that pain stops you doing a whole lot of stuff physically. But what people don't really talk about is that mentally and emotionally, it's really challenging for you as well, because you can't do this stuff. So you can't fulfill the normal tasks and the normal responsibilities that you have. How are you going with that? Yeah. And that's uh, interesting what comes out of that question. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, like, disease is i heard this the other day it's it's dis-ease there's a dis-ease that comes with disease um it it strips away some of the meaning from your life some of the things through which you derive a sense of fulfillment a sense of a uh, deep purpose um, and, and I, those don't have to be lofty I, i'm you know i can't save the whales anymore i mean it doesn't always have to be that it's sometimes to your point, it's like, can't play with my grandchildren anymore. I, I find a lot of satisfaction in doing manual labor. I can't do that anymore. That's what creates the disease, creates this deep level of discomfort. And that's really where most of the pain is housed. It's in the things that it strips from you. I think it's brilliant that it's important that you, as a healthcare professional, show up in that way to invite someone to share those things that are creating that disease. Um, much further than just the disease itself. I could see how that would be really transformational for people to be able to explore that. Um, and then you're working with them from meaning upwards, right? How do we restore some of that sense of self, that some of that sense of meaningfulness back into your day-to-day? Like, let's just focus on that. And that sometimes I don't have the skill set to deal with the answers that come out. But thankfully, I know people that do. <laughs> so I can do some and I can, I can 
But what I love about it is that you're getting to the heart of the matter. Yeah. And the heart of the matter is what human healthcare is about. Mm-hmm.